in my life personally. I, I, I thank him for his faithfulness in your life as well. Um, I'm thankful for the testimony that we've heard. I'm, I'm thankful for the truth of the songs that we've sung. I'm thankful that this is the living and active word of God. Um, and so I don't have a message for you this morning that is not, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, that, um, I'm simply a messenger of the good news of the gospel of Jesus as it's found in the letter of James. And so we are in James chapter 1, 22 through 27. And, and I'm going to, um, yeah, obviously we're, it's 1040. Um, and so I'll do my best this morning. But like I say often, um, the door's not locked. So if you need to roll because that roast is burning and those potatoes are getting a little more crispy than you want them to get, just feel free to do that. Um, but I will try to finish in a timely fashion for the sake of those watching the kids. Um, and so in James, uh, th- this is a pastor writing to dispersed Christians who are suffering. And um, I've, I've given a lot of overlap in the last couple of weeks, but this morning I'm not, I don't have the time to give all of it like I normally do. But just keep in mind that these are Jewish Christians and, and what has happened in really the last few verses is James has introduced this theme of the word. If you remember in verse 18, he talked about of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In verse 21, he talked about this word of truth being implanted in us. At the end of verse 21, he talked about the word of truth being able to save our souls. Now keep in mind that James is a Jew and so he doesn't have a New Testament. He doesn't have what we have. And so when he's thinking of the scriptures or the word of God, he is thinking about the Old Testament scriptures. But also keep in mind that James is a born-again believer in Jesus. And so not only is he a Jew, but he understands that the Old Testament law, sacrifices, and the whole temple system was fulfilled in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that he understood that fully yet, but those of you that might kind of raise your eyebrow at James and think, well, it's just a works-based book and it it doesn't really it's a different gospel than what Paul preaches keep in mind that he's born again his hope is Christ he's not banking in his own effort or his own ability he's he's made that very clear and so that's a that's an important reminder that he's a converted Jew he's a he's a follower of of Jesus he knows that the word is Jesus the word is the person and the work in every promise that came from Jesus Christ. And so this Greek word is logos, which you see in John chapter 1. If you remember back over a year and a half ago and on September the 11th, we started in John chapter 1 verse 1 right here in Big Sandy Elementary School. Some of you weren't here yet and we praise God that you're here now. But it said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we know that the Word as the New Testament defines it and as Christ himself defines himself is everything that he did, everything that he said and every promise that he made and so James knows that the living abiding word that um, we're saved by we're born again through that's implanted in us and that's able to save our souls is Jesus himself now let's go ahead and dive in here in verse 22 um, through 27 now now 22 through 25 are, are preached a lot okay so if you've been in church any amount of time 
you've heard these verses preached. Because these are verses that are really easy to kind of pull off to the side. And, and, and you got people that you think or, you know, people struggling with obedience or not doing the right thing. Or you've seen some inconsistencies. You might reference these scriptures or... It, you know, for your own heart, it might be something when you've struggled with sin that you've kind of gone back to and, you know, say, hey, I need to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. And, and, and all of that's true. Okay. All of that is, is good and it's true. Now, um, I'm going to say some things this morning that, that might um, be surprising. And so if you have questions, I want you to jot those down. But I want to say this up front, sort of as the banner that will fly over this message is that a gospel of morality is not the gospel. A gospel that just compels you to do certain things on the outside and look a certain way on the outside is not the gospel of Jesus. It's just not. Unfortunately, it's a gospel that's preached because here's the thing, it's easy that way. Believe it or not, the A gospel that's based on morality is a really easy gospel because if you can look a certain way and do whatever your culture says or the top 10 things you shouldn't do if you're going to be a Christian, then as far as everybody else looks, as far as the church is concerned, as far as your your, maybe even your family, everybody else, you're okay because you look a certain way. The true gospel drives straight to our heart. And, and, And so morality is not the gospel. Does morality come through Christ? Yes. Is obedience a real thing? You better believe it's a real thing. But I'm not interested in you walking out of here doing things better. That is, if your heart's not surrendered to Christ. So I'm interested in you falling at the feet of Jesus in full abandonment and surrender as him is your only hope in all things. And what will birth out of that is a true gospel obedience. Not to earn his favor, not to try to gain his love, not to try to get a place in his family, but because of his grace and he's pursued you in your fallenness and in your brokenness and he has adopted you into his family by his blood and by his resurrection and by his work and through his promises. Because of that, that you didn't deserve, that I didn't deserve, that God demonstrated his love for me while I was a sinner... Like, that's gospel motivation. That, that's the motivation to obey and to follow Jesus. And so, in verse 22, when he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. The first takeaway, there's going to be four or five. I can't even remember how many there are. Let's see. I don't know. They're not numbered. Four or five. First one is this, though. You deceive yourself to hear the word only. Now, James is not the only one that said this. Remember, I've said this a few times. The Sermon on the Mount and the letter of James, are, they parallel one another. Really, the undercurrent, the one that's teaching in James is Jesus himself. So look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and also verse 26. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, he says it the negative way in 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, Luke also recorded Jesus saying something similar in, 20, in 11, 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And it wasn't just James and it wasn't just Jesus, but Paul also understood this in Romans 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I mean, think about this. What context is it okay to hear important words and then walk away and not do what they say? How does that work in your marriage? Does it work in your marriage? Let me give you a big N-O. No. Does it work at your place of employment? 
If you receive instruction and you walk away from that instruction and, you do, and you've heard it and you understand it, but you do not listen to it, how does that work for you? Are y'all with me? It doesn't. I mean, so, so let's, let's understand that like, as we approach the, the living, abiding word of God, it would be ridiculous for us to think that we could hear the word and understand the word and walk away from the word and not obey it. But that really translates, in, it, it translates into every area of our life. I mean, it's not chicken soup for the soul, but right, if you are a chicken soup for the soul person and you read that and you see something that really kind of moves you, I mean, it would be ridiculous for you to say, well, that moves me and then to walk away and not actually try to apply it to your life. I mean, how many of you like fortune cookies? Like, I love fortune cookies because I believe God is fully sovereign in all things. And so when I open that fortune cookie, basically it's a message from God. <laughs> it would be ridiculous for me if I believe that that's a message from God. It's not inspired. It's not the word, y'all. Don't, I mean, you can email um, Dolan, email Dolan if you have questions about that. But my point is, is we get these, we get these messages and we hear messages and words all the time and we apply them. This is a real thing. You don't just hear the word and it's not just James that teaches it. Paul teaches it. Jesus taught it. And even in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, the, uh, the one who hears is the one who builds his house on this foundation that's rock solid. The one who does not hear builds his house on sinking sand. Do you know what he just told them? That not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. It's a warning. It's a warning because the, the culture in the context, please hear this, please. It's religious. There are people who are associated with the word. They're around the word. They're hearing the scriptures I already got people leaving. And, and they're hearing the scriptures. And, and they're not really hearing because they're not, they're not doing. And so, James believes that the word is Christ, but also what he believes of the Old Testament scriptures is that they are sovereignly compiled, divinely inspired document that is meant to bring glory to God by saving us and sanctifying us. But this deception is religious in nature because he's talking about people who are actually, what, hearing it. I'm not a fear monger, but I want this to strike something in our hearts. This means that some religious people hear the word and somehow walk away not being truly impacted by it. Which that implication is this, that this group, the potential group, thinks that they are truly right with God, but they are not. That their religion is a sham. It's fake. And this has devastating consequences for one's eternity. And so he says, don't, he's, again, writing to Christians who are suffering, they've been dispersed. Don't deceive yourselves and hear the word only which leads to this next takeaway intently looking into the word is still only looking look what he says in verse 23 for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror now, now I do think this is critical in our understanding and application of what James is saying here because being around the word and even in the word is not all he's after. Do you follow that? Because see, we get hung up in this analogy. 
of, well, you know, they're, and all the commentaries say it. I've, I've read them. All the commentaries are like, well, you know, their mirrors aren't really like our mirrors because they're just polished bronze. True statement. They're polished bronze. And, and so you, you really did have to look intently if you wanted to really see anything on your face because it wasn't as clear as our mirrors. Fair enough. And, and that might be an application that you can follow out in your heart in some place. But I really think this is what James wants us to know and understand. Nobody looks intently into a mirror at their face and then walks away and forgets what they look like. That's not even possible, is it? I mean, if you walk back in the bathroom right back there, either one, and you looked into the mirror, and it's not even polished bronze, just crystal clear, high definition, right? Real time, that's you. No, you cannot walk away from that and not know what you look like. But it's more than looking. Not only is he not just after them looking. Now, I'm going to say something here, and I want you to try to follow me, because it's perk your ears, and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is a... This is a cult. He's not even looking just for you to look into the word or to be around the word. His end goal is not even your obedience to it. I'm going to use Paul for an example here in Philippians 3. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was as religious as you could possibly get. Okay? Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. This is what he's referring to. His his religion. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He, he, he was around the law. He looked intently into the law. And, and, and what else did Paul do with the law? He followed it. He obeyed it. And so, he, he, and, and here's an example. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal. There's passion there. He was so passionate that if you didn't follow the law and look into the law the way that he did, what did he do to you? He took you out. A persecutor of the church. Those are true Christians. As to righteousness under the law, what does that say? You cannot be blameless under the law unless you look intently into the law and you what? I know I'm being redundant, but I'm trying to make a point. You're what? You follow it. You're obedient. Next. But now listen, this is the con huge conjunction here. I'm, I'm going to save you from the... From the it's a huge conjunction. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever he gained from looking intently into the law and even following it, it's a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In this context, what he counts as rubbish or garbage, or if you want a literal word there, poo-poo, what he counts them as is everything that he did prior to Christ in regards to religion is garbage. It did not accomplish one single thing for him in his righteousness. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. Where's the righteousness from? God. That depends on faith. In our society, where the gospel a prevalent gospel is a gospel that's preached around morality, then you can walk away from this scripture at this point and go, hey, look into the mirror of the word and when you see dirty stuff, wipe your face off. Clean your face up. And you can walk away and you can try to wipe your face off. But how many of you have um, a laptop? 
Oh, no, no, an iPhone. Have you ever tried to clean your iPhone screen? Try to clean it with your finger. Try to. Right now. Somebody try it. That's for real. Seriously, like you have to have special stuff. Okay, here's the deal. You can't clean your screen with your finger. It's just gonna keep getting more greasy and more nasty. The more you try to clean it, the more you can wipe as hard as you wanna wipe and it's still just gonna have just as much residue and dirt and oil. It's not gonna get clean. I know that's a, probably a really bad way, or a dumb analogy, but I want it to stick and because I, I, for this reason, you can't clean yourself. I mean, if you could clean yourself up, Paul would have been clean. I mean, if religion was the way, legalistic religion was the way, Paul would have been clean. You realize that you can have two people side by side doing the same things and saying the same things and one be lost and one not. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. That means that there will be people who are surprised that they're not in the kingdom. Why will they be surprised? I was around your word. I was obeying your word. I even spoke about your word. It says, depart from me for what? I never knew you. Next takeaway. Obedience is critical, but obedience does not save. Do you guys remember what Jesus called the religious hypocrites of his day? The Pharisees? you remember any specific words? Descriptive words? Whitewashed tomb? You remember that? That means like they're... I mean, he, he, he described it like, you're a whitewashed tomb. You are beautiful. You are stunning on the outside. Like if anybody else walks up to you other than the sovereign God of the universe in the flesh that just his sovereign eyes sear right to your heart, everybody else who has normal eyes looks at you and goes, man, that must be what it looks like to be a Christian. That must be what it looks like to be on God's side. You're a whitewashed tomb. But what Jesus said, you're a whitewashed tomb. And when you open it up, it's full of dead man's what? bones he called them a brood of vipers literally it's poison that their hearts produce they were constantly looking into the word doing what it said so much so that these pharisees and this religious leaders they what they added to it you guys realize that these jewish christians that paul's writing to this was their experience I mean, these were the leaders that they were around. This is what they knew of religion. This is what they knew of God. Appearance, focused on the outward appearance. And here's what's ironic to me. And sad at the same time, is I think this scripture has been used more to point people to this type of religion than to Jesus and hope in him. Hey, look in the mirror. Clean your face off. In our society... This really is a thing, by the way. All right, right, so has anybody ever heard of moralistic therapeutic deism? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Moralistic, it's, it's it's, it's in Wikipedia, Google it. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That is a phrase that has been used to describe Christianity in the last 50 years. Here's how it's defined. First is this. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Most would amen that, right? Amen. All right, number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible. All right, check. Okay. All right, three. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
You don't have to say if you check that one, but some might check that one. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. I don't know how surveys work completely. You know, honestly, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, nobody asked me what I thought. I'll just put it out, out there. So maybe you got asked, I don't know. But based on surveys from born-again Christians, these are the main things that born-again Christians believe about Christianity. That there's a God out there, and He does exist, and He created all things. But He's therapeutic in nature, so when I need Him, I go to Him, and He massages my shoulders or tries to fix my problems, but I don't necessarily need Him on this day-to-day basis and as long as I look intently into the word and walk away and clean myself up in the way that I'm supposed to and I'm a pretty good guy or I'm a pretty good girl surely I'm okay to go to heaven one day that's not the gospel church I mean can I just humbly say to you this morning if, if, if that that was behind if that's your hope you don't have hope that's not what the Bible teaches us about our condition. It's not what the Bible teaches us, uh, teaches us about who God is. It's not what the Bible teaches us about what God has done. So how does this translate into this context that James is writing to? Writing to Jews steeped in Old Testament law and obedience, committed to the principles. And, but, but they do have this new understanding. They do have this new nature, right? Because of who? Say it. Y'all with me? Who gave them a new nature? Christ. So now I want you to look at one word here. I put the brakes on when I saw this word. And I've talked through James before and did not put the brakes on for some reason. But I did this time. Look at verse 23. Midways, he is like a man who looks intently at his what? What does that say? Natural face in a mirror. I, I, was, I thought, I thought to myself, why in the world does he not just say, looks at his face in a mirror? Like, why is it natural face? And so I went to the Greek and said, all right, so what is the Greek word that's used here for natural? And does anybody know what it is? You're going to know it. Genesis. So literally, it's the man looks at his Genesis face in the mirror. What do you think of when you hear Genesis? Beginning. Original created right maybe your mind goes where mine went to um this imago day that we are in god's image when we look at our natural face in the mirror we are seeing a human being who has been created in the image of god but if james does understand the new birth that he's just talked about in verse 18 that we were brought forth by this word of truth then there's a very clear implication here in understanding that since in your life and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have this new identity. And so what if he's talking about your original face? Not just your Imago Dei created in God's image, but here's what it means. I mean, maybe. Look at your original face, your Genesis face, your natural face, who, yes, was created in the image of God, but what that face represents is one that is separated from God. That natural face that's only representative before God is who? Adam. The way that the Bible describes what's behind that natural original face is that we are dead spiritually, we are eternally lost, we are condemned, we are cursed, we are hopeless. Y'all encouraged? 
We're wretched, all descriptive of our original or our natural face. But now since Jesus, this natural face is one that has been redeemed, chosen by God to live a life worthy of the cross, one that has been redeemed by the cross, one that has been recreated to live in this unimaginable relationship with its creator, one that has surrendered in faith to the lordship of Jesus. So here's what he's saying. Nobody, nobody's gonna look in, their, in the mirror and look at their face and walk away and forget what they look like. That's not even possible. Likewise, it's not possible for one who's born again to look at their Genesis face in the word, in the perfect law of liberty, and to go... Man, I understand what Jesus saved me from. Like God says about my natural face and that Jesus in his grace pursued me and loved me and redeemed me and adopted me into his family. Nobody sees that and turns around and walks away and forgets it. As ludicrous of a thought as as it is to think that you would forget what your natural face looks like. James says this man is deceiving himself who listens intently but forgets the words, the joy, the conviction, the grace upon their return to the world. You see, if this message here is just to clean yourself up, then the self-righteous people, you know what they walk away doing? Beating the chest. The self-righteous people walk away from this scripture going, thanking God that they're not like all the other people out there in the world who don't have it off as good as they do, who don't have it figured out as good as they do. See, the self-righteous person is going to take this scripture and probably at this very moment be thinking about all the other people that should be sitting in their seat right now that really need this message. But James says, nobody looks at his natural face in the mirror in verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. If it is to remember what you were like, what Jesus saved you from, who you were before Christ, there's zero room for human boast or praise, and there's a newfound motivation for obedience. In fact, I'm not even sure how how this would even be encouraging at all to suffering Christians if James was just telling them to get their act together and do better. That doesn't encourage me. I don't know, you know, maybe it encourages you, maybe it's kind of, maybe that's your love language, but it's not the gospel. The hope of the gospel is we look at our original face, our natural face, and we remember who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we walk away from what the perfect law of liberty says about who we were and now who we are in Christ. And we have this newfound motivation to obey and to follow the commands of Jesus. Fair question now. What does the word command? Verse Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, it's not used anywhere else, by the way, the law of liberty, there's freedom now in the law because of Christ, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. The premise of the law of liberty is love. God's love for you your love for him and your love for others. Now I want to show you quickly in Matthew 22. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. He's a teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, now since Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do we realize that we can do a lot of things morally that are acceptable in our culture and not love God and not love people? Which are the two greatest commandments that Jesus is after. And the reason he's after those is because he's given you a new heart if you're a believer. And so this law of liberty is driven by God's love for you that he's shown through Christ. Your love for him and your love for others. First John as well. Um, really that whole chapter of 1 John 4, but here's a couple of highlights. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, I'm sorry, anyone who does not love, anyone who does not love does not know God. There we go. But God is love. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You think these suffering Christians have been more challenged than they've ever been to love? The attributes in his character have already come into play because of their suffering. He's dealt with that. But now you guys know when things get tough, when things get nasty in our life, it's harder to love people. People get more annoying, don't they? Especially the ones that don't know what to say or don't know how to act. It's hard to love people. Here's another dynamic for these Christians is maybe for the first time in their life, they actually have an enemy. Somebody who's waking up in the morning and they've set out, they've set their face to hate them. They've set their face to kill them, to destroy them, to take them off the face of the planet. And the gospel of love says this, it compels us to love them because that's exactly what Christ did for us. In Jesus, God destroyed every single dividing wall of hostility that was between us and him. I mean, the Bible describes us as enemies towards God, haters of him. We had no desire for him. Yet he pursued and loved us. Be doers of this love. If you're partakers in this love, I I think this is where James is encouraging and where he's leading and where the gospel frees them to love the people that hate them and want to kill them. It's so much more than a message of morality. Look at 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious, again, bringing us back to this, or maybe for the first time, maybe just showing you why, why it's religious in nature. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see these religious folks that, have focused in on the more serious sins that they're able to avoid. They show, have this outward show of religion, exalting themselves under this pretense of passion and zeal. Um, they're actually deceiving themselves and others by speaking because their, their message is not a message of love. Their message is not a message of grace and a message of mercy. It's a message of works. And James calls it worthless. It's a worthless religion. Here's some of the things that I gleaned from the text of what worthless religion is. Jeremy, if you could go ahead and throw those up just quickly. And we're going to roll through these fast, guys. Worthless religion. People who are a part of a worthless religion, they're quick to speak of their righteousness, strength, and ability. Quick to speak of others' defects. Run from that. Avoid that. Repent of that. 
quick to speak their way into an exalted place in the eyes of others. That, that's a tricky thing, and that can be so subtle in our lives and so subtle in our hearts. You guys, don't read this going, boy, all those worthless people. No, seriously, evaluate. Next, spiritual and physical. Quick to speak a gospel that is accomplished and sustained through works. Quick to invest in people that yield a return. The orphan and the widow, in this context, for the religious, self-righteous person, that's not a very good investment. They don't offer anything. They might not ever be contributors to the church. So spend your time investing in people who have it together. That's worthless religion. Pure religion that's driven by the gospel, that's driven by Christ and has a heart for Jesus and understands the love that Christ has shown us is that he pursued you when you were an orphan. You had no heavenly father and he adopted you in. And in their context, y'all, they're suffering. Surely because of their suffering, there are widows now. There are wives that have lost husbands. There are children who have lost parents because of this suffering and this persecution. And I think James is going, hey, wake up. Don't worry about all this religion and look in a certain way. Would you love people in the way that Christ has loved you? Pure religion. Remembers Christ's righteousness, strength, and ability. Next. Remembers their own struggles and not only the struggles of others. Now, uh, I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount here. Um, you know, everybody always says, I'm, you know, judge not. Well, that's not always, that's not true. We are called to make judgments towards people. But Jesus says, don't help your brother remove the speck out of his eye until you what? Get the log out of your eye. And so that's what I mean here. Remember that you are struggling. You, if, if you approach your brother or sister who's in sin and you have taken the time to repent and confess your own sin, you go to them with an attitude of humility. That's pure religion. Next, they desire that Christ is exalted in all things. Is that the last one? Next one. Um, they move towards the destitute and the needy, not away from them. Pure religion moves toward the most needy people in the culture, in the context. Safe haven, that's where I want us to go. I want us to go, because some of you right now, you know people. You, know, you have neighbors, you have coworkers, you, have, you know people who are in need. Not just physical need, but spiritual need. And we got to go to them, not away from them. Remember that, uh, that salvation is accomplished and sustained through Christ's work. Lastly, invest in others in order to yield spiritual fruit. Don't use derogatory language. Don't be a drunk. Don't be an adulterer. Don't slander. Don't lie. Don't hate. Don't look at porn. Don't use drugs. Don't commit sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't envy. Don't neglect church. Don't neglect the Bible. Don't write. Yes. All of those things are bad and they are sin. But listen to me. You can avoid all of those things and go to hell. The gospel is not calling you to follow a list of rules. The gospel is calling you to surrender in faith to Christ, hoping in his work and his righteousness alone. On the flip side, you can visit orphans and widows and go to hell too. So the call is to Christ. And so don't, don't walk out of here going, man, I got to get my life together. I got to figure it out. Jordan, you guys can come on. Now I gotta, you know, so, so this scripture in James is, is pushing me towards cleaning my life up. That's too easy. 
I mean, Romans 2 tells us we have a God who judges the secrets of our hearts. Did you catch that? I mean, Jesus made it clear that he's concerned with what's on the inside of us. That's why we have a new heart. That's why we're born again. The, that's, James understands the Ezekiel prophecies of he's going to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And he understands the Ezekiel prophecies fulfilled in Jesus that now the word will be written on our heart. Not just on our doorpost. Not just on our t-shirts. But it's implanted in us. And he calls it this perfect come through Christ and been ushered in through mercy and through grace and its premise is love, beginning with a love for God. So we have to start there. If you go, hey, I don't know if I love God, then maybe you have not understood or misunderstood his love for you. And the greatest act of love that it's ever been shown is through Jesus. God himself putting on flesh and skin and bones, living a life that we could absolutely 100% never live accomplishing an obedience even greater than what Paul said he accomplished. Because you see, Paul got it all right on the outside, but his heart was rotten. He was a whitewashed tomb. So there's hope. There's hope for you if you're a sinner. That means there's hope for all of us. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I, he doesn't say, I'll give you more work. He says, I'll give you rest. The beautiful thing to see is whenever you surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you know what flows out of that? Fruit. You know what flows out of that? Obedience. Following. Surrender. Sacrifice. But you have to start with understanding the love that God has shown through Jesus. And maybe for the first time this morning, you find yourself right there at that threshold. For the first time, you're going, man, I think I finally see. Can I just tell you to surrender to Him with your mouth. Confess that He is Lord. With your heart, believe that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Would you surrender to Christ? I mean, why not today? I mean, why walk out of here assuming everything else about your life? Why not today surrender your heart to Jesus? Why not? It's a message of hope and rest and grace. So believer, just worship. Evaluate. If there's sin in your life, repent. That's a gift. We have the gift of repentance. Don't, don't wallow in your sin. Don't push your sin back. Don't tell God about all the good things you're doing. Don't think, hey, he's great. He's so glad to have me on his team because I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. Y'all have heard that before. Repent. In humility. So the call is to come to Christ. Believer, worship. If you'd like to surrender your heart and life to Jesus today, I, I can't do that for you, but I would love to pray with you. And I'll be up front. Let's stand.